It's no small thing to be here on a holiday weekend like this. Uh, I just love living in Seattle. You just don't have to worry about getting sunburned on 4th of July weekend. It's just great, isn't it? I mean, I hate putting sunscreen on. It's the worst. So, <laughs> happy 4th of July weekend. Um, if you aren't on our weekly email, you should get on the weekly email so that you can find out a little bit about what the sermon is going to be about in the coming week. And it's going to be all about hats. So this is my hat. What do you think about that hat? You like that hat? Yeah. This is a nice hat. Uh, got that hat at a bluegrass festival in Telluride, Colorado. This is an authentic uh, Faustmann hat from Germany. It's a great hat. Uh, men of the, you know, pre-1950s, they would have worn a hat in America almost everywhere they went. It would have been something of a disgrace to not bring your hat with you wherever you went. And... Uh, Unfortunately, I was born in the wrong era, so I don't get to wear my Fosterman hat very often, but I brought it today because we get to talk about hats. Uh, hats. Now, I don't see any of you wearing your best Sunday hat. Um, you may have seen the Queen of England and her henchmen wearing hats and things like this. I can say these sort of things because it's 4th of July weekend, <laughs> but we love the Queen, and, uh, but she's got great hats, and why do they wear hats? What, what was the deal with the hats? Uh, why do we take off hats when we pray at the dinner table or before we sing the national anthem? Or Why is that? Do you know? It's all because of the passage we're going to be looking at today. All the hat stuff that you can think about when you think of hats comes from this passage. And yet this passage says nothing about hats. <laughs> so we'll... We'll ask that question and we'll, we'll maybe, maybe some ahas will come to you about why there has been ingrained in our cultural consciousness this idea of hats and what you do with your hat and when you take it off and when you put it on and why the British wear them to church still if you're the royal family or some even in parts of this country still wear hats. Um, we'll get to see a little bit from 1 Corinthians. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. We're entering our, uh, continuing our teaching in 1 Corinthians. It's going to be chapter 11 today. So if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles in the seat back in front of you. And we're going to be on page 1017 in that particular version. So our sermon series is uh, Moving in Step with the Peculiar Wisdom of Christ. That's what we've subtitled this 1 Corinthians series. 1 Corinthians was a letter that the Apostle Paul had written to the church that he helped to start in the city of Corinth, which was uh, not far from the, the city of Athens. And Corinth was a major hub, an international city, a port city, not so different from our city. And it was known for a lot of things, including sexual immorality and, uh, uh, and, and lots of money, fast living, those sorts of things. And so uh, Paul had some sort of correcting to do to the church that he helped to start because once he left, uh, there had been some drifting into things that he thought were not moving in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. And so one of these things we'll see today has to do with what to put on your head and what not to put on your head. Um, it's either that or he's talking about hairstyles. And there's a big scholarly debate about what actually he's talking about and in case you've done some pre-reading on this, in a lot of ways it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether he's talking about head coverings or he's talking about hairstyles. The bigger idea will come out as we read this passage. But what he is saying is that it matters. It matters what signals we put out into the world. What signals are you putting out into the world? Signals matter. You say, well, they shouldn't matter. We're free in Christ. We're new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. And what Paul's going to say is, not so fast. Yes, we live in the new creation. Christ has set us free. We are no longer under the yoke of the old. But he says, but we're not yet all the way there. And so it matters. It matters to understand our culture, it matters to understand cultural signals, it matters to understand what other people might consider to be honoring or dishonoring, acceptable, unacceptable, 
modest, unmodest, all that stuff matters because we care about people. We don't just care about ourselves, but we care about others, and others might not be in the same place that we are. So I'm going to kind of give you the big idea up front because I don't want it to get lost. This is a terribly difficult passage, and it's not easy. Some of you may need to go listen to it again to make sure you're not misunderstanding what Paul's teaching here because this passage has been misused. It's been misused to oppress people, to make people feel inferior. So it has been misused. So we lead with lament and we say, there's something beautiful here, but it's maybe easy to miss. So I'm going to lead with the big idea. This is the most important thing that I want you to take away. This is so important to see that what Paul, and he's been doing this through the whole letter, if you've been tracking with us in this series, he's doing it, doing it again. Paul is, is primarily fighting against an arrogant spirit, a spirit of smugness. They were saying, we are the Corinthian church. We are above convention. We are special. We are different. We are unique. We have figured it out. And they were putting that we are underneath the guise of the gospel of Jesus. We are unique because we know Jesus has set us free. And so they were connecting their freedom and their cavalierness and their unconventionality to the gospel. And Paul will say, no. This kind of smugness is anything but Christ-like. This is not the peculiar wisdom of Christ. This is actually the wisdom of Corinth. Corinth, a place of innovation and throwing off convention and thinking we're superior. Perhaps as I said this, you said, did he say Corinth or did he say Seattle? (laughs) Not so different from segments of American Christianity today. And I, I would just say, we're a pretty young church. I think particularly in the younger generation of Christians in this country. We've figured it out. We know. The old, ah, is bad. We've really got it. So this is one scholar I read in the commentary this week, writing on this issue. He put it like this. Like many edgy, trendy, flashy churches today, The Corinthians appear to have viewed themselves as pacemakers, those who flippantly throw off order, tradition, and conventions, even those established by Christ and the apostles. They claim to have higher spirituality than all others and likely appealed to the authority of their own so-called prophetic gifts. The Corinthians created a do-it-yourself form of Christianity and worship which was characterized by disorder, division, and chaos. And Paul responds to their elitist and innovative spirit with a bite of sarcasm. So if you're in your Bibles, turn with me to uh, chapter 14, which is the end of this section we're just entering into today. There's a long section about orderliness in worship, basically. Paul's going to talk about all these different things that are happening in their corporate gatherings when they gather, likely in home churches is where they were meeting. He's going to talk about a lot of different things. And he ends this section in in chapter 14, verse 36, by saying this. Here's here's, Here's how he ends this whole section. He says, Or did the word of God originate from you? Or did it come to you only? So after critiquing many elements of their disorderly worship, worship that he considered not honoring to God. He says, did the word of God come just to you? Did it originate with you? What's he doing? He's using sarcasm to say, of course not. You're not the first ones to think about this. You're not the first ones to read the word of God. You're not the first ones to wonder how do we best live this out. He's saying, be careful. Be careful not to offend the living God. That's the big idea. (laughs) Paul's saying, don't be smug. Don't be arrogant. 
Be humble. Be respectful. Consider others as more important than yourself. Yes, you have freedom in Christ, but that freedom came with a cost, and it might even cost you. You might have to live in such a way that you don't feel like you need to, but you will in order that many might come to know Jesus just like you do. That's the big idea of this passage. Now, let's see how we get there. We get there in some ways that I've said could lead to some misuse. So we've got to understand what Paul's actually saying and what he's not saying. So I want to, um, I'm going to use this word, propriety. And perhaps you're smarter than me and you know exactly what that word means, but it's a really important word. I'm going to read you the definition. Propriety is this, the quality or state of being proper or suitable, conformity to what is socially acceptable in conduct or speech, the customs and manners of polite society, fear of offending against conventional rules of behavior, especially between the sexes. So, this word is so important to what Paul is going to say. Because what is proper, or propriety, in any given culture changes over time, changes over place. Even what is proper, what is propriety today in Seattle, may be different than even another part of this country. Definitely different than other parts of the world. And so Paul's argument here is going to be tied to what is proper, what are the customs and traditions of his day. And so there is some relativizing that we need to do. So it's okay. As we'll see, that it's okay. I could wear my hat right now, and I would not be offending God. If you're a woman in the room, you, could, you don't need to wear a head covering. This is not improper because of our cultural context. And that's going to be so important as we read this so that we don't get lost in the, the specificity of what Paul's saying, but in the principle that he is espousing. Okay, so what is propriety? Great word that we should all use more often. Okay, here we go. So in this culture, in the Greek-Roman culture, it's important to say, in the Greek and Roman culture, not in the Christian culture of this time, but the Greek and Roman culture, this was a very gender-divided culture, and it was an honor and shame culture. So the head of the family, which was the, uh, the male, the highest-ranking male in the family, um, he, was the, he was publicly symbol, symbolized the family's honor. Okay? And so the members of his family were to behave in public so as not to disgrace or dishonor that person so that the family's good name would remain intact. Again, this is not a Christian thing. This is a Greek and Roman thing. And so everything that Paul's going to say is based upon that Greek and Roman custom and society, not upon the Christian. Why is that? Because they were just trying to spread the good news of Jesus, invite people into the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God, teach of the goodness of God in that culture. They weren't trying to create a whole new culture. They were trying to do what was proper so that their actions wouldn't get in the way of people considering the good news of Jesus. And the same is true for us today. So in that culture, a woman could not actually acquire honor for her family, but she could lose it. There was such a way that she could behave that would lose honor or dishonor her father, or if she was married, her husband. And so it's through this strict maintenance of sexual purity, personal integrity, that a woman would contribute to her family's honor. So this is the context. This is the custom of the day. Paul is not introducing this idea. This isn't new. And in many, many cultures, this is not new. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, therefore... This is how men and women should act when they gather together in corporate worship. In this culture. In this time. But then he's going to point to three different things. He's going to point to the creation story. So this is biblical theology. And he's going to say, now, 
this culture is not completely devoid of the creation idea that God has put into the world and designed. So he's going he's to point to creation. He's going to say, now understand it from this perspective. And then he's going to go and he's going to talk about uh, the Bible proper. He's going to say, we have other scripture that helps us see a principle here of honor and dishonor and why that's important. And then he's going to actually point to nature itself. And he's going to say, use your common sense, look at nature. There's signs in nature that help us see some of these embedded realities. So he's going to say two different things. One is, don't unnecessarily give Christianity a bad name by acting in a way so different from the customs and traditions of the culture you live in that people won't even want to consider the gospel because you're acting in this way. And also, I want you to understand why it's important to show honor even for Christian families. You can do both of those things. So how, how we'll uh, walk through this today is... Um, in three movements. The first will be, I'll show you uh, why the culture was what it was and why Paul says this is the part we can align with, and actually there's a couple parts we can't. Then I'm going to show you why honor is still so important to Paul, and it should be to us. And then finally, I'm going to say, what does honor and dishonor look like in our world today? Because it's clearly different than it was in the Greco-Roman world of Corinth. So this is what we're going to do. And uh, I think I'm going to need some help from the Lord. So let's, let's after that long introduction, let's, let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We know it never returns void. So there's some, something here today for us. As we look at this passage, uh, God, we, we, we want your help. We need your help to see what parts of this apply still to us today and what parts of it were just for the Corinthians 2,000 years ago. Help us to see that. God, we pray against distraction. We pray against any of the world's ideas infusing themselves into my words or misunderstanding my words. But we want to see the gospel here. We want to see the peculiar wisdom of Jesus here. Help us, Lord. We cannot do that alone. We need your spirit. And so we pray, God, knowing that you're here, even knowing that there's angels worshiping among us. So we recognize and we welcome them and we say hello. Jesus' name. Amen. That last part will make more sense in just a sec. But I'm going to read now, and I'm going to start just a few verses that Ryan touched on last week. So the last few verses of chapter 10, I'm going to start there in chapter 10, 31. I'm going to read the whole section until 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen. okay? Because I want you to see the context, because it's not, this is one letter. It's meant to be read, but we kind of break it up because uh, we're a little slow. So we are going to read the hinge verse here, and see that what Ryan talked about last week about eating food sacrificed to idols is not that different from should we cover our heads or not cover our heads when we gather together in corporate worship, okay? So here we go. 1031 says this. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me, Paul says, as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, because you remember me in everything, and hold fast to, here's that word, underline it, traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head, that is, dishonors Christ. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, that is, her husband, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. Okay, we'll get to that. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her head cut, uh, or her hair, not her head. <laughs> she should have, whoo, okay. It's very bright up here. Okay, she should have her hair cut off. She should shave her head. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, 
let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. In the Lord, however, as we're saying, for those who are Christians, who believe and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, who are part of his family, who have been baptized and have said, I'm with Jesus. In the Lord, however... Woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. And all things come from God. You see the equality here. Paul wants to make sure you see, because he just said some hard things if you weren't tracking. He says, just so you know, though, I want to make it totally clear here. In the church of God, we believe in equality. There is no superiority or inferiority. Woman came out of the rib of man, pointing back to Genesis, and now every man that's born comes through a woman. What's he saying? All of it comes from God. This is God's plan. There's no superiority or inferiority, but there is order. Verse 13. So he says, judge for yourselves. Use your common sense. Is it proper? For a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Clearly not the case anymore, Fabio. It's so funny that you don't know who Fabio is. Okay, look it up. For her hair is given to her as a covering. Oh, sorry, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her. As a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom. See that word custom, underline that, custom. Started with tradition, ends with custom. You think custom and tradition are what he's talking about? Yes. He's not telling everyone and every... He obviously had no long, did not know how long it would be until Christ returned, but he's talking about in his custom and in the tradition of Corinth, this is what he's talking about. Nor do the churches of God. Not the churches of God for all time and all places, but... All the churches of God now in that same cultural context, which would have been all the churches in the Greco-Roman world. We all have the same custom and the same tradition. And what was that tradition? It seems to be, like I said, either he's talking about a particular hairstyle or I'm just going to go with the uh, most traditional interpretation would be that you would wear a head covering, some sort of a shawl over your head to symbolize when you came to worship that you were married. Or, if you weren't yet married, that you were not yet of the, ready to be married. And so you were under the authority of your father. That would have been the custom, the tradition. And that would have been exactly the same custom and tradition of the Greco-Roman world as well. So Paul's saying, let's just stick with it. Let's not offend anybody here. Definitely, we should consider making sure our husbands and our fathers don't feel offended. Whether they would or not isn't the question. Perception is the question. Others might think you are dishonoring purposefully. And we don't want Christianity to be associated with dishonor. So, be aware. Know what signals you're sending. Know what the cultural norms and customs are. So, like, I'm just going to give this one to you because I know this is a difficult, difficult passage for many, particularly in this city. I just want to know, this is the, this, of, of all the examples I could think of, this is the most clear. Whatever you do, as worshipers of Jesus Christ in the city of Seattle, please, please, don't wear a Make America Great Again hat to church, <laughs> okay? Just don't do it. Seriously. Not worth it, <laughs> okay? I'm not making a political statement. I'm saying, out of love and care for this city... And what would be interpreted or what signal you're sending, please don't wear a MAGA hat, that's what they call them, to this church. Or really any church. It's not about that. You might be able to make a great argument of, for this political candidate or that. It's like, don't do it. Know your culture. Don't misassociate a political party or a political movement with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please stop. 
Okay? Don't wear that hat. Talking about hats today? That's the hat not to wear in this city. That's for men and women. (laughs) Get yourself a Fosterman. It's a beautiful hat. Nobody will be offended by this hat in the city. This is the custom of the day. (laughs) Okay. Great hat. So, let's break it down now. So again, Paul is addressing honor and shame as it relates to the customs and the traditions of their day. Okay? That's what he's talking about. Know what propriety looks like and follow it unless it directly offends God or directly breaks another of his commandments. I think this is so interesting. Even though that's his big idea, Paul is going to start with one exception to this rule. And the exception is how men are to pray and prophesy. Now, just for clarity, when he's talking about praying and prophesying, he's, he's most likely speaking of people who come up front in the gathering or stand up, if you're in sort of a circle, and are, are sort of taking a leadership role of praying and prophesying. So it's really important to see here is that Paul is assuming that women in the congregation are praying and prophesying, meaning they're standing up and speaking publicly. This is going to be important to remember when we get to chapter 14, because there's another really challenging passage where it says, uh, wives, you're supposed to be silent in church. But here he's clearly assuming that they are standing up, praying and prophesying publicly in front of the whole congregation. But he's saying, when you do so, just make sure your head is covered so you're not dishonoring your husband or your father. I just want to say that. We'll get there when we get to chapter 14. What is he talking about in chapter 14? But clearly he's assuming that women are actively a part of the corporate gathering. It's like Tylene is up here singing worship. It's obvious. He just assumes this is, this, is, this is fine. This is no problem. This is amazing. Just do it in such a way that is honoring. Okay. So let's look at the one exception he gives about breaking from custom. This is important. Because even though I'm going to say follow the customs of the culture you live in, that doesn't supersede honoring God. So there could be something that the culture does that we don't do. In fact, in a city like Seattle, there's plenty of things we wouldn't do to honor God. Okay, let's look at it. So, chapter 11, verse 4. And we'll come back to verse 3 in just a second here. Verse 4, he says this. Before he gets to... What, how women should act in praying and prophesying, he speaks to the, the men in the congregation. He said, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head, which is to say dishonors Christ. Now this is strange. What, like why does the woman wear something on her head to honor her husband, but the husband doesn't wear something on his head to honor Christ? It does, the logic seems to be broken. Here's, I think, what's going on. Um, we've got a picture of this. Would you throw that up there, Kamran? This is actually a statue found in excavations of Corinth. And here what we have is a picture of a man who has gone to one of the temples, Aphrodite or any of the other Greek gods, and he's come to pray. And what the men would do when they would go to pray, would they'd take their toga and they would pull it up over their head. You see? So what Paul is, why Paul gives this is not because it's the custom of the day, but actually it's counter to the custom of the day because the custom of the day is when the men would go into the temple to bring their sacrifices and worship, they would cover their head. And Paul says we need to do, in this instance, a distinguishing mark, meaning as the people of God, we do not worship idols. We do not worship the Greek gods. We worship one God, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. So in this instance, we do. Even as uncomfortable it might be, we need to break from tradition and show that we do not worship the gods of Greece or Rome. That's what's going on here. So again, there's nuance to these principles that Paul's going to show us. So for men, he says, don't worship like the men of Corinth when they go to the idol temples. We worship different. We want people to know we worship a different God. So that's why he says, 
don't cover your head, because that would actually dishonor Christ, because it would show him to be just like all the other gods, when he's not. He's holy, set apart, he's other. Interesting. Again, hard if you don't know the cultural context. Then he moves on. He says, so men, this is what you're going to do, but women, you're going to stick with the custom of the day, which would be to show honor to your husband. He's primarily talking here to husbands and wives, even though the Greek word could be translated man and woman. He primarily has in view, and this would have been most adult age people, husbands and wives. He says, now, verse 5, every woman or every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since this is one and the same as having her head shaved. Huh. Again, you wouldn't just know unless you studied the context. But basically what Paul's saying, and this is part of why people think maybe he's talking about hairstyles here, because he just talks a lot about hairstyles, so it doesn't really matter. But what he's saying is, if you walk into public worship, and you, have, you don't have your head covering on, but people know that you're married, this might be misinterpreted. It's either interpreted that you're dishonoring your husband, you're not underneath his authority, or perhaps, in a Jewish context, that you've committed adultery, and then your head would have been, had to, you had to have your hair cut off as a show, kind of like a scarlet letter, that you have sinned against your husband. Or, a third possibility, is that you were one of the temple prophetesses, which we've talked about. The city of Corinth had a big temple to Aphrodite where there was many cult temple prostitutes. They would have short hair as well to show or signal to the world this is who they are and what their profession is and how you might engage with them. So see what Paul's saying? He's saying, let's not confuse people. Yes, you have freedom in Christ, Yes, God is not a God who can be, your prayers could be stopped because you didn't have a covering on. Of course not. God is not so small to be affected by our customs. But it's about the horizontal. It's about the other people. Let's not confuse them about who you are, what relation you're in, if you have honor for your husband or don't have honor for him. Like, let's not confuse people. So, wear a covering. And then he goes into this funny little argument about well, are you going to shave your head? And everyone's going to be like, no, of course I'm not going to shave my head. He's like, yeah, so you do have a line in which you won't cross because you know it confuses people. That's what he's doing with the shaved head stuff. He's like, everyone has a line. Now, your line might not be head coverings, but what he's saying is some people's line might be. And if it might be, it's best just to keep with the custom and wear the head covering as not to confuse This is so important because we do this all the time. We may have changed the line of what is modest or immodest. Of course the line has changed. Everybody knows that. But we all know there's a line. Like there's just things you won't show up to church in. I guarantee it. Right? Now that line might be different for all of us about what we think is modest or not modest. But the point Paul's making is you think of most people, and you dress appropriately as to not offend them or make them uncomfortable or dishonor your husband or your wife. Well, we'll get into this when we talk about the principles of how do we apply this. But this is all Paul's doing. He's saying, you wouldn't shave your head, would you? And they're like, no, of course we wouldn't do that. It's like, so you have a line that you will not cross because you know it would be confusing or dishonoring. So just think about everyone, even the more immature Christians in the group. Let's not confuse them. Or the non-Christians who have not yet received or heard, don't confuse them. Because we all have a line. So interesting. So practical. So loving. So the line for Paul that he thought was pretty common was, if you're married, wear a head covering. And he's saying, listen, it'll be revolutionary enough that you're, as a woman, praying and prophesying. Because that wouldn't have happened in, the idol, in idol worship or the temples. Women were not allowed to pray and prophesy. So it's already revolutionary. Paul says, so you don't need to keep pushing the boundaries just to make your point. Don't be smug about it. Be thoughtful. Be, be careful. Be loving. Be kind. 
honor. Okay. Let me make this important disclaimer. When we're talking about head coverings and honoring, we are not talking about every woman to every man. So Paul is not saying every man is the head of every woman. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about husbands and wives. We are talking about fathers and daughters. This is really important because if we don't see this as we get into the theological explanation that Paul's about to give about how honor, which directions it goes, and which ways it flows, uh, we might get lost here. And it has been misused. We're not talking about every man to every woman. We're talking about in the family unit. How do you give honor? and How could you potentially dishonor? And again, verse 11 to 12. Let me read it again, because this is what Paul's doing. He's like, I know I just said some stuff that's going to rustle some feathers, and I want to be clear. I don't want my words to be misused, which they have been for 2,000 years, because nobody reads verses 11 and 12. He says, just to be clear, in the Lord, however, in the ESV it says, nevertheless, it says, don't go too far, don't be crazy about this stuff. He says, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. He's saying, we are interdependent. So whatever you think I just said, (laughs) he's saying, just make sure you know, in the Lord, we are interdependent. We cannot do this alone, yet there's order to it. And this is why honor matters. So second movement. Why does honor matter so much to Paul? Let's read verse 3. I skipped verse 3 because verse 3 could get you shot in the city. So let's read it. But I want you to know, and he's not saying this in like a sarcastic, he's done that in the past. He's like, how come you guys don't know this? He's actually saying, I just want you to know. The way the Greek is constructed, he's not being mean here or saying, you should know this, or how did you forget this? He's just saying, I want, you, I want to be clear, I want you to know this, that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, of the wife, and God is the head of Christ. God the Father is the head of Christ. That's to be hard to hear with our modern ears. But there's an order, Paul's saying. An order in the ontological universe in which God exists. It's an order bigger than you. It's an order not created by you. It's an order that we need to be aware of as we think about honoring one another in the name of Christ. So Paul's saying, why does honor matter so much? Because... Honor is a recognition of the order that God has designed and defined through His Word. So God designed it, and then He defined it through His Word. And to ignore it, or to flip the bird to it, is to dishonor God. That's why it's important, Paul says. We can't get rid of the concepts of honor. We can't get rid of the concepts of order. We can't get rid of this stuff because this is God's stuff. And and I I just want you to take note of three things. The first thing, and it's so important. Look at this. Who else is a part of this order? Who else has a head, which is an authority in front of them? Christ himself. Christ Himself, God the Son. So even before creation, there was an order in which one came before the other and the Spirit then does the will of the Father and the Son. And so there's an order there. So order is not inherently wrong. So we throw no shade on those who would seek to honor whoever and whatever the head of the family may be. Christ doesn't think it's a bad thing. He willfully and joyfully does the will of the Father. He doesn't lose any of his godness by doing that. This is so important to see. It's Christ-like 
to come underneath, and we'll talk about this word head in just a second, but to come underneath your head, Paul says. It's Christ-like. And in fact, the way Paul orders this thing, you might notice it's not hierarchical. He's just saying there's order, and he puts them all out there, I think, just to kind of mess with us. Be like, don't think you know what this means. This isn't like the Greco-Roman order of command. This is something a little bit different. But there is order and willful coming underneath which is the word that we don't like, submission. And there is all this stuff, and Christ does it. So we've got to figure out what does this look like in the world? How do we do this in the world? Because Christ figured that out, and, and he did that. He modeled for it. That's part of his peculiar wisdom. That's the first thing to notice. The second thing to notice, as I already said, is that it's, I'm going to just keep repeating it, it's assumed that women are part of the worship service. They are not inferior Men are not superior, but both of them are a part. They work together to bring glory to God. Just assume that that's happening. It's so important to see that because this passage has been misused in ways that you know, we, ha- we have to admit, lament, and repent from. Okay? And the third thing I want you to notice is this. Even though Paul just says this about Christ is the head of every man and the husband is the head of the wife and God the Father is the head of God the Son, Christ. Even though he said this challenging word to us, look at where the agency remains. Who has agency in this passage, in this whole passage? when it comes to what women should do with either their hairdo or their head covering? Who has the agency? Meaning, who makes the decision about if they're going to do this or not? The woman. This is incredibly important to see. The agency remains with the wife here, the woman in these passages. She has a decision to either honor or to shame or dishonor. Her father or her husband. She, she has all the agency. Which is to say what? She has the power here. The power is in her hands. And in every epoch, every age, every culture, the gospel comes in and says, men and women both have power. They both have agency. They both have a choice. They can either honor or dishonor. And it, and, and it, it looks different in every culture and every time. But a woman always has power. So important. Paul is saying... It's not that she should be made to wear a head covering. It's that she gets to choose if she wants to wear it or not. And if she chooses it, it's like Christ choosing to submit to his head, the Father. But she has the agency. So important to see that. So, this idea of honor, you see it throughout the Bible. One of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother, right? Honor your father and your mother. What does that mean? It means to bring light to them. Paul will use it in a second. We'll talk about this. He uses the word glory, but he's using it as a synonym for honor. To bring them glory, to, to make them their reputation and their name great, to, 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 put, to put good lights, the opposite of putting shade on them, to, make them, to speak highly of them, to make others see them as, as valuable. And so when the Bible says, honor your father and mother, it's not just about obedience. It's about when you have obedient children, right? People will look at you and say, wow. <laughs> when my kids do not obey me, like at a restaurant, I feel so much shame, right? Like, I feel dishonored. I'm like, what are people thinking of me? Because my children are out of control. So the Bible says, honor your father and mother. In the Old Testament, it also says, when you get married, you will leave your father and your mother, and you will become one flesh with your spouse. So what do you do then? Well, the, 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 the commandment follows you. So you once honored your father and mother, now you honor your spouse. Wives, you honor your husband as you did your father. And husbands, you honor your wife and you love your wife as you did your mother. So one, just quick, insert a little application here. For those of you who are married, do you honor your husband or do you love and honor your wife in the same way 
that you love and honored your father, if you're a woman, and if you're a man, how you loved and honored your mom. We've got to be real honest with that. Or do you think something different has happened now that you're married? I think this is how our culture thinks about marriage. They don't think about it like this. So I, I think lots of times we honor our parents still in the way that God calls us to, but it has not translated to honoring our spouse. We've got to be really honest with that. If you're not sure, ask your spouse on the drive home. What do you think? Do you think that I honor you like I do my father? Do you think I love and honor you like I do my mother? Be super honest. This will help your marriage because this is part of God's design that you will leave your father and mother and that honor that you were supposed to give to them that you now give that in the marriage relationship. Okay. So now let's get to this sticky question of what does it mean to be the head? By the way, this doesn't feel like a holiday weekend, does it? This is a very intense topic. Okay. Lord is good. Okay. So what does it mean to be the head? Now, there's so much debate around this. I can't tell you how much I read on this. And the reason there, part of the reason there's so much debate is because we don't like what it means. <laughs> okay, so the, the classic definition, or the definition that was sort of agreed upon for like 1950 years, was that head meant authority. Why would people think that? Well, obvi- obviously, um, it's, the head is an analogy. So the actual word that's used here is also used of the literal head. But it also can be fig- figuratively, it's used other places in Greek literature, not just the Bible, as speaking as a representative head. And so it makes sense, right? And so I, I, there has been a movement amongst scholars to throw that old definition out because of the new culture we live in. But honestly, it, we can't throw it all out. Why? Because... Is Christ the head of every man? Does he have authority over every man? I hope we're saying yes. Men, you don't get to just do whatever you want. Christ died for you and he is your authority now. So I don't want to get rid of that definition of head from this passage because I think that's really important. So do we get rid Is God the Father... Does he have authority over the Son? Well, Jesus seems to say, I do only what I see the Father doing. I'm totally surrendered to the Father's will. That feels kind of like authority language. Again, it's not superiority and inferiority, but there is authority. There's order. So it's tough then to just pick one, because the other definition that's become popular, and you do see it used in other Greek literature, is the idea of head as source. Kind of like the head of a river, or the trailhead, right? It's the source, so it starts here and goes out. Yes, but Christ is not sourced by the Father. They are one and the same. So I get what's going on here, but there is something that I think you can combine those two ideas that does help us understand what it means to be the head. Because husbands, you should be asking, what does it mean to be the head of my family? You'll also be asking, what does it mean that Christ is your head? So we've got to know what it, what it means here. So I think a, a good mix of these two ideas is that head is first or prominent. So like if you watch my son, my three-year-old son, Owen Russell, his seven-year-old brother, who's much bigger, he's like, how does great Owen always win <laughs> these wrestling matches? Because Owen leads with his head. <laughs> he's got a very thick head, and he just shoots it right into the gut, and Grayson gets distorted, and it's very fun to watch. So he leads with the head, right? Like, try wrestling and leading with your chest. It's like a really weird, your body, it's like a really, it's difficult. You know, we tend to like lead with the head, right? So the head is sort of prominent, right? It's sort of, the rain hits the head first. So the head can be like a roof. The rain hits the roof first, the head, it's prominent, it's first. How does the plan of God start? It starts with the Father. He's prominent. He's first. And he's working all things according to his plan, including sending the Son. So there's a prominence here. So I think that's helpful, maybe, to think about what does it mean to be the head of the household. It means to take the first step. 
To, that's what it means to be a leader, to take initiative, to move forward and, 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 and ask and lead by example for your family. Now, of course, if you are the head as Christ is head, your leadership is going to be full of sacrifice. And it's not going to be selfish. It's not going to always demand your own way. It's going to look for the input of the rest of your family. And it's going to realize where you're not the smartest in the room, which in my family is in a lot of things. So I ask my wife's opinion, and I ask her, what do you think? And I say, I don't see this quite clearly. But I take responsibility to take initiative. That's what it means to be the head. I sometimes like to describe it as, as um, in our society, often marriages are like, you know, we get married, but we keep our own ships. And so we try to sail together. But then we kind of don't really agree on the same way. And so we're using all this energy, and maybe sometimes we're close together and going in the same places, but a lot of times we're not. That's not what the Bible says. Two become one flesh. Two ships become one ship. So how does this work in the ship? Well, I say the man is like the sail. A bit lifeless. <laughs> a bit boring. A bit dull. But he has a lot of power. And his power is making sure the sail is directed in the right way. What's the right way? The way that Christ has told him to direct it. Where shall we go? What adventure shall we take? And then the wife is like this sometimes chaotic but beautiful energy that comes and fills the sail. That's what submitting means, to come underneath. So think of a ship. Choosing to use your wind, not to sail your own ship, but to come underneath the sail of your husband. Together use your force to move to God's plan and goodness in your life. That's what a great marriage looks like. But it's recognizing that my wind shot elsewhere, it's not going to have the same effect. God's brought me together with the head of the family, the sail of the family, so that we might move together. And we can accomplish and adventure more together than we ever could apart. And we're together in it all. At every step, we're together. And when that wind starts blowing elsewhere, guess what? Marriages get rocky. Ships start spinning. And the sail does feel very small and unimportant. Because he's not the wind. He needs the wind. He's nothing without the wind. He's just a floppy old rag. Wives, your husbands need you. Husbands, you need your wives. You cannot do this alone. You will go nowhere, or where you will go will not be the place that Christ is asking you to go. You need to work together. Which brings to this definition of glory, which again is so strange. But I think I know what Paul's saying. What is he saying? He says, a man should not, this is verse 7, a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. If you're a student of Scripture, you know, Wait, that doesn't sound right. I thought men and women were created in the image of God for the glory of God. Yes. Yes. Paul's using the word glory in a different sense here. And we we have the answer, as we always do in this series, in chapter 15. Right? Go to chapter 15 with me. We've said this is sort of the key. If you're doing a crossword puzzle, you always got to go to chapter 15 to figure out what else Paul's saying? It's my favorite chapter in all the Bible. It's why I'm going through this difficult journey to get to chapter 15. In the fall, we get to go five weeks in chapter 15. Get excited about that. But look at what he says here. Chapter 15, verse 43. Chapter 15, verse 43. What does he say? He's talking about the resurrection body. He's saying, we'll all die, but we'll be raised. And the body we're raised in is kind of like our old body, but so different also. And it's different in great ways. He says, actually, jump back to verse 42. It says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown in natural body, raised to spiritual body. What did he do there? Every other one made sense, and then he dropped in the, difference, the opposite of dishonor is glory. That gives us insight into what he means here. In chapter 11, go back to chapter 11. So what he's saying is, the man should not cover his head because he is the image and the one who honors God by the way he worships, by the way he lives, by the way he conducts himself, just as the woman honors the man. The wife honors the husband. 
So there's order to this. We don't have exactly the same calling and task, though the woman is honoring Christ, and one of the ways she honors Christ is through her honor of the husband. He's talking about honor here. Every human being glorifies God. They're created in His image. They glorify Him. And when you are married, Paul is saying, wives, you have a chance to bring glory to God uniquely by the way you honor your husband. For whatever reason, God's made husbands to be particularly sensitive to being honored and dishonored. If you don't think that's true, you need to talk to your husband. He will tell you how true that is. And probably he's been dying inside because he doesn't know how to say it. Because culture says he's not allowed to need it. Because it makes him weak. I need it. I need Allie to honor me. I need her help lifting me up. That's what it means to glorify, to lift up. I, need, I can't do it myself. And so, of course, if the opposite happens, it crushes me in a way. Not saying women don't want to be honored. But men need it in a particular way. Husbands, you need it. It's okay to say, this is what I need help with. And it's all part of God's plan and design. And it's not gross. It's beautiful. Having these conversations is not offensive. It's not degrading. It's actually honoring to both God and His design and to your spouse. How do we do this? Which is the third movement. How do you do this? How do you do this Honor, shame, custom tradition, propriety. What does this look like in our cultural context? Well, we still do, we do it in some things. There's, there's little nuggets of it everywhere, right? When you go into a courtroom, all stand for his honor. Judge so-and-so or Judge Judy or whoever it is. We all rise. We give a standing ovation to honor at the end of a play or concert. We take off our hat, as I said, for the singing of the national anthem or to pray. So we don't, uh, those things don't actually mean anything, but they do mean something, right? Like they still have some power. What would it be in the marriage relationship? How do you show honor in the marriage? Like I said, I don't think we need to start putting head coverings on, but we wear wedding rings, right? I told Allie as she was leaving this morning, don't forget to put your wedding ring <laughs> on because I'm going to talk about it. Right? Sometimes I forget to wear my wedding ring. And in some settings, it's not as big of a deal. But if I was out at the bars with some buddies and I wasn't wearing it, that might be interpreted as dishonor to my wife, even if it was an accident. So be thoughtful about that. What signals am I sending? Modesty. That's different in every culture and every time, but it doesn't go away. What does it mean to live modestly? To dress modestly? Well... Super practical. You could simply just ask your spouse, what do you think about what I'm wearing to church this morning? Does this in any way embarrass you? If so, I'm going to change. Not because I think I need to. It doesn't embarrass me. But my spouse might not like it. And that's okay. You're not losing your individuality. You're loving your spouse. You see? I ask Allie all the time, how do I look? Sometimes she says, change. <laughs> Usually not because I'm immodest, but because I'm embarrassing her in some other way. I didn't ask her about the hat, by the way. Snuck it out of the house. <laughs> she loves this hat, great hat. Okay. Okay, now, some of you aren't married. Many of you aren't married. What does this passage have to say to you? What does this idea of honor and shame have to say to you? Listen very, very closely. This is the thing I'm most excited. Most excited about this. What should you be thinking? If this is what God is calling you to do, to honor your husband, women, if you're going to marry him, guess what you want to think about doing? Marry someone that it's not hard to honor. Because you don't get out of it just because your husband's hard to honor. You see that? So be very thoughtful about who you marry. And I've watched some of, some of you do this really well. You realize in your heart, it's going to be hard for me to follow their lead. It's going to be hard for me to honor them and to trust them. And so you know what? 
we probably shouldn't get married. That is so wise. That is the peculiar wisdom of Jesus. Keep doing that. Ask yourself, will it be... It's always hard. I'm not saying it's not going to be hard, hard to do this. But be super honest with yourself. If this is what I'm called to do, to follow their lead, to see them as head, could I do that with this young man? And young men, ask the same question. Do I have what it takes, with God's help, to lead a woman like this? Can I be the head? And if you realize she'll never trust you or follow your lead or honor you, I wouldn't marry that person. Because it's going to eat away at your soul year in and year out. So be super honest. And when you find somebody that you do think, I could honor them, even if they're not the most attractive person you've ever been attracted to, even if they don't make the most money that anybody you've ever dated makes, if you can honor them, if you can follow their lead, if you trust their relationship with Christ, marry them as soon as possible. Just do it. (laughs) Because this is the hardest thing in marriage. To honor your husband. And to, to receive honor from your wife. And to feel like you matter and that that she trusts you. Like if you find somebody like that, it's not that the other things aren't important, but you, you, you do it. I'll just say this. I was talking to Ryan about this. It does matter if you're attracted to them because what did we learn in chapter 7? We talked about sex and marriage. That your body's not your own. Men, your body's not your own. It's your wife's. Wives, your body's not your own. It's your husband's. That's true whether or not they have good breath or bad breath. So marry someone with good breath. Simple as that. <laughs> but they don't need to be the most attractive person you've ever met. But you generally want to be okay sleeping in the same bed as them because you're going to have to do it your whole life. (laughs) So there's so much practicality here. So it's the same. So yes, you want to be, have some physical attraction or at least you don't want to be repulsed by them and you want to know that you can honor them. Follow their lead. It's all good. Really excited to share that. So you could ask your friends. Do you think it's going to be hard for me to like honor this person? And they might be like, yeah, that's a good sign. You probably should break up. Think of the birds. Think of the bird installation. If you're new with us, the bird installation is saying, when we all live with the, move in the peculiar wisdom of Christ, we move together in such a beautiful way. We don't run into each other. We don't kill each other. And this passage tells us that we should be, to both insiders and outsiders, a people of interdependence, We don't separate, but we're interdependent and we care about honor and respect. That's what the church of God, that's what our reputation should be. And so anything that gets in the way of that, we should avoid so that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't get lost in our cultural freedoms or our personal preferences. That's what Paul's talking about here. And when we do this, we are like God the Son, Jesus Christ, who voluntarily submitted his power to the headship of his father to what results? One, that you and me receive forgiveness of guilt and the debt due for our sins and rebellion against our creator. That's what Jesus choosing to submit, choosing to come underneath the father did for us. And it also did what? Christ the son was then in response to his submission high and lifted up so that he is now the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, that he is the King of kings. As 1 Corinthians 15.27 says, all things will be put in subjection under Christ. Who? The one who subjected himself to the Father. This is what I call the double portion of glory that happens when you choose to live according to God's order. It's not bad. It's good times two to the, to the second degree because you're choosing to honor one another. You're choosing to defer your authority to another. You're choosing to not take part in things you could because you love others. Ultimately, will raise others up and will lead to your glorification by the Father in the end. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is going to tell you. You're going to be glorified just like Jesus. So we do it because God has told us this is the way things work. And guess what? It works really well. It's really fun to live like this. It's not oppressive. It doesn't hurt. It actually leads to life and happiness and goodness because it's God's design 
as he's defined it. Two very quick, very practical applications. If you're taking notes, if you grab one of the clipboards, there's a little section that says one big action step. I'm just going to give you two, and you can put your own there as well. Two big action steps. Ask yourself, why do I dress the way that I dress? This is an application for our day. What is your motivation? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that we read, Do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks, nor to the church of God. Why do I dress the way that I dress? Is that why? To bring glory to God? Or am I motivated by some personal uh, need for self-expression, some personal need to differentiate myself, some personal need to make a statement, some personal need to buck tradition, some personal need to stand out, some personal need to be noticed by the opposite sex, some personal need to attract a mate? If those are the motivations of why you dress the way you dress, you need to rethink, reconsider. Now, it may or may not change the way you actually dress, but you need to know that the reason you dress the way you dress is for the right reason. That's all Paul's saying in this passage. Know why you're doing it. And then, like I said already, ask your spouse. Ask your spouse not only the way you dress, how that makes them feel, and I think this goes both way, men and women, but also what they do. Wives, do ask your husbands. When we're in public, when we're with other people, this is Paul's talking about public interactions, what are the things that I do that bring you honor? What are the things I do that bring you dishonor? You may be surprised, and it doesn't actually matter if you think they should bring honor or dishonor. What matters is how the other person receives it. What are the things that bring you honor? Do that. I love it when Allie holds my hand in public. That brings me honor. I love when she does that. So I can just tell her that. We had this conversation. I love it when me and Allie get to take communion together when we're doing corporate worship. Not because she has to take it with me, but I love doing it together. It brings me honor. I love my wife. I love doing these things with her. What is it? What brings you honor, husbands? Do you know? Have you thought about it? Wives, you can ask the same question. You can say the same thing to your husbands. When you do this, husband, this makes me feel honored and cherished and special. Husbands, you do it, whether you think you need to or not. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the glory of the Son. To close, let me just say this. The definition of anarchy is a state of disorder due to the absence or the recognition uh, of, of authority. Or used in a political sense, it's the absence of government and, abs- and, and, and which gives then absolute freedom to the individual. Anarchy is not the way of Jesus. Jesus is not coming to sow anarchy in the world. He was coming to sow order and God's order. So we don't want to be anarchists. We want to be Christ followers. Just know that. Don't be smug. Don't be purposefully anti-traditionalist. Show respect. Show respect to the people who have built the bridge for you so that you could come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and find forgiveness of sin. Show respect. Honor those people. Honor your elders. Honor those who have gone before. Don't think you're so special and you, you know it better than everyone. It is not the way of Christ. That's the way of the world. Be the people of Jesus. Let's pray.